0: Hey everybody from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer.
1: And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she is the top prosecutor in Cook County, Illinois. It's the second largest county in the nation. And Kim Fox is on the leading edge of criminal justice reform.
0: We're going to talk with her about her agenda for criminal justice reform growing up in Chicago's most notorious public housing and how it shaped her life and attitudes about the justice system.
1: That's right. And one day after President Biden gave a major speech on rising violence in America, we'll also get her thoughts on his plan as well as her fellow progressive DA. DAs, like Chase Abutin here in San Francisco and George Gascone in Los Angeles who are actually both facing efforts to recall
2: them from office.
0: Absolutely. And state's attorney Kim Fox, welcome to the breakdown.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we start, we just want to clarify for our listeners cuz here in California we call people in your position DAs, like the county has a district attorney. That's essentially what you are for Cook County, right?
2: That's exactly right. It's the exact same thing. I'm the top prosecutor responsible for prosecuting criminal cases, as well as civil cases on behalf of the county.
0: Okay, just to clarify that. So President Biden, as Marisa said a minute ago, gave his first address on gun violence yesterday. And we're just wondering, as the lead prosecutor in a city that is often held up by Republicans as, you know, sort of an emblem of the failures of gun control policies, what did you think of what Biden had to say? You know,
2: I I appreciated that it was a comprehensive uh, approach, that it wasn't strictly a law enforcement strategy, that there was a lot about investment um, particularly into alternatives to prosecution, into um, interdiction that happens on the street level um, that matters more, I think, than once someone is arrested. But also in Chicago, we have we do have a, a, a gun problem that has been persistent and a flow of illegal guns um, that come from other states. And so hearing that there's going to be greater investment and coordination around the flow of illegal guns and holding gun uh, shops uh, that do straw purchasing and and know that those guns are being used for illegal purposes are going to be held accountable. Uh, that I think is, is also, critically important, particularly here in Chicago.
1: I'm curious about that because there's been a lot of reporting really over the past decade about how kind of defanged ATF has become. This is alcohol, tobacco and firearms. They are supposed to be federal partners with both federal law agencies, but also state and local to go after those straw purchasers to crack down on, you know, folks who are either making ghost guns or and and, you know, they haven't even had a director in so long. Like as someone in your role, would it be helpful to have an ATF? that was doing what they're I think supposed to do
2: absolutely I mean I you know it's no secret here in Chicago where people always tout our gun laws that the guns aren't happening they're not coming from Chicago they're coming from you know a handful of stores in surrounding areas that we know are are driving a significant portion of violence. Like these are guns that we can trace back to these stores. Mm -hmm. And the ATF has the ability to find who, to know who these stores are, to know what guns they have, to know how these guns are trafficked. And we have been incredibly frustrated about that lack of coordination. I will say when I first came in, we had an incredible uh, special agent in charge uh, who happened to be from Chicago, who was in charge of the ATF, who was very thoughtful about uh, working with us, uh, tracing guns, tracing bullets, doing ballistics, um, working very proactively. um, But that has not been consistent. And, And you're right, it's been a decades-long issue uh, with the ATF.
0: And just to be clear, I think it's obvious, but uh, just to be clear, the president did not talk about defunding the police, which a lot of Republicans accuse him and Kamala Harris of wanting to do.
2: He did not. In fact, he talked about greater investment in law enforcement resources. And so I know there is a tension there of, you know, how many more Chicago has, you know, one of the largest police departments in the country and yet we still have rising violence. And so what we've been able to show is that increased police presence doesn't necessarily drive down crime. But an investment in the technology that will allow for us to do greater uh, ballistics training, uh, ballistics tracing, um, going after those who are engaging um, in ghost guns, that matters. And we need that right now. Yeah.
1: Well, this whole thing, the speech and and his response is really sparked by what is a significant increase, especially in violent crimes in many cities across America. I think we should have the asterisk that it's still lower than rates were 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it. I mean, really, year over year, it is very rare to see double digit increases like we did. I I wonder, as someone in your role, like, what are you seeing in your community? Why do you think this happened during the pandemic and and is, you know, continuing into 21?
2: I mean, I want to start with your point, Marisa, that this is, um, we are, have been in a period, a, a prolonged period of decreasing crime rates across the country. And I think if you listen to the news, um, you would think that we were back in 1990 and we are not. Um, crime has been on the decline uh, for the last almost two decades. But the pandemic, we have to remind people, we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetimes. Like, We haven't. There are very few people who were on this planet uh, when we had the last uh, major pandemic back in in 1918. What's the
0: the connection, though, between that and rising violence?
2: Um, and the connection is is that you had the economy uh, almost grind to a halt in the beginning of this. You saw record job losses in rapid succession. You saw people um, being confined to their homes, children not being able to go to school, social services essentially shut off. Um, where you saw maybe uh, interventions that we know. Uh, help people who are engaged in in some of these activities, gone. So like street outreach, gone. Um, And you saw stress and anxiety. And any criminologist will tell you that those uh, on top of conditions of poverty and disinvestment and stress um, lead to this toxic mix. And so I think people have to remember that this has been unlike any period in our recent history. And so to try to draw a correlation between rhetoric around defunding police or who's the prosecutor at the time without taking the full context into play um, is intellectually dishonest. Um, and won't get us to long term solutions.
1: So. We're seeing here a lot of blame of local prosecutors for some of these rises in crime rates, whether it be the violent crime we're discussing or, you know, things like burglaries and and robberies. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about, like, what is the role of a prosecutor? And do you think it's fair to blame, say, Chesa Boudin here in San Francisco um, when we see these spikes? I mean, obviously, you all are part of this system.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I'll start with the end. Chesa was sworn in in January of 2020, um, and the pandemic happened in March. And so the notion that somehow in the limited amount of time that he had been in office, that he is somehow to blame while in the middle of a global pandemic, again, it's just intellectually dishonest. Uh, Same thing with George Gascon, he got sworn in in December, and somehow all of a sudden he is to blame for this upward trend that's happened over the last 18 months. Prosecutors come in after a crime has occurred. Uh, we, we are not the first responders. Um, we are the people who react to a crime once it's happened. And our job is to prosecute. And what you've seen from a number of prosecutors is looking at our resources and saying, are we using our resources effectively to keep our community safe? And what it turns out, in many cases, we go after things that aren't about public safety. And whether that's people who are smoking marijuana, people who have mental health issues, people who are poor, um, those going after those people and not going after people who are, are trigger pullers, going after people who are exploiting um, uh, children, going after people who are doing real harm, um, is not a good use of our resources. And that's what this movement has been
0: about. Well, and as you said uh, earlier, uh, you have a very large police department in Chicago, and yet the crime rate is going up. Does that suggest to you, well, what does it suggest? Obviously, the police aren't containing the violence, but maybe maybe that's not their role, or is it?
2: Yeah, I think it's a collective, right? I, I think we know what the root causes of violence are. It, it, it is not rocket science anymore. In the areas where we have the highest levels of violence outside of the pandemic, let's take the pandemic out, um, we have the highest levels of unemployment. We have you know the lowest levels of educational attainment. We've seen the vestiges of redlining and disinvestment in the very neighborhoods. Healthy, safe, thriving communities tend to have less crime. Um, In those areas where you haven't dealt with issues around mental health and poverty and people doing the things that they need to do to survive, you see upticks in crime. And so police are also responders. We need a robust crime prevention strategy and a response strategy that holds people accountable, that's fair and equitable, um, and recognizes the history that comes with it. In Chicago, we do have a large police department, but we also have a really uh, horrific legacy of police misconduct and abuse that the people in the neighborhoods who are impacted by violence remember and such when something happens, they're less likely to call the police. Um, They're less likely to engage with the criminal justice system if they don't view it to be legitimate. And so you need a police force that's legitimate, incredible, And you need to deal with the issues that drive violence in the first place.
0: All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Kim Fox. She's the top prosecutor in Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Kim Fox. She's the first woman and first black state attorney for Cook County, Illinois. Basically, she's the DA there. And she was reelected last year to her second term. Before the break, we were talking about the role of the police. And we want to ask a question, too, about the role of media and how media contributes to perceptions about crime, to the way uh, the DAs in San Francisco and Los Angeles are covered, uh, and the impact it has on how voters feel about them. What are your your thoughts about the media? (laughs)
2: Listen, I think there is an absolute necessity for a strong uh, journalistic arm to be able to hold people accountable to tell... uh, tell the truth about what's happening in our in our world um, but I think that this sensationalizing of crime if it bleeds it leads um, and what sells what gets clicks um, is nothing new you know when we talk about the Willie Horton effect of um, 1988 that's literally sank a presidential campaign, what you realize is that the media has a tremendous amount of power um, in shaping the narrative. They they are uh, really the biggest uh, contributors to what the narrative is by deciding what stories to tell. Um, and again, you know, death and, and crime are painful uh, human uh, issues And yet when we so focus on the one case or the one instance and not talk about bigger patterns or trends and drive the narrative based off the worst that we've seen, um, it's no surprise that the public's perception of what violence looks like may be very different than the reality.
1: Yeah, we have three strikes here in California, largely uh, because of a lot of attention there. And we should correct something. Scott said you were the first woman you actually beat. uh, Your predecessor was a female. She was your former boss. She's always Uh, correcting me. (laughs) I know, I know. Sorry. All right, well, let's talk about how you ended up in this role. And I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, We mentioned that you grew up in public housing um, called Cabrini Green, which is very familiar to the folks around Chicago. But um, doing some research, it sort of seems like it was kind of synonymous at the time with the failures of public housing in America. What was your experience like as a young child growing up in a place like that? Um, and, And what have you kind of brought with you?
2: Yeah, Cabrini gained national attention because it was the home of the fictional Evans family from the TV show Good Times back in the seventies. Ah. And so if you look at the outer scapes, it that was Cabrini. And we also had national notoriety because of the movie Candyman, mm. um, the the fictional, you know, character who uh, terrorized people. Um Fun. Was based in Cabrini. <laughs> yeah. So so that's how people know Cabrini. Um, it was in the seventies and eighties. It was truly, I think, a a visual representation of the failures of so many um, social policies, particularly around housing and poverty. Uh, for me, growing up there, you know, I lived there with my mother, and my brother, my grandmother, and my aunts. Uh, it was both a place of love and nurturing. Uh, because my family was there and our neighbors looked out for one another, that even in the violence um, that was surrounding us, uh, there was a real sense of community. But at the same time, it was very real. You know, when I went out to play with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a few days, um, because she had been shot and remembering her coming back to turn double dutch with us and showing us her bullet scars. And so there was a recognition that the place that you loved and nurtured and were growing, um, was also a place of great danger. And both of them lived, um, with equal weight.
0: You have a very compelling personal story and that's part of it, of course, but you've, you've also been very open about the fact that you were, uh, sexually assaulted, uh, as a young girl. you you spent a little bit of time in a homeless shelter when your mom lost her job. How, how do those things, what, how do you bring those things with you to the job you have now?
2: You know, those things meet me at the job. Um, When we look at, for example, young women or girls who end up in the criminal justice system, both as victims and as defendants, What we find, particularly with defendants, an overwhelming majority of women who are in our justice system have had a history of sexual assault uh, or some sort of sexual trauma. Uh, We see a number of the young women who come into our system who have had issues of domestic violence in the home. And so for me, it is, I'm very fortunate that not only have my have I been a survivor that I also didn't end up in the system because we mm-hmm. see these cycles of trauma um and And really, if we don't recognize uh, that people who are hurt, who have these unhealed traumas, um, who are trying to navigate a world with what it means to be a survivor, may do things um, that land them in our system. And so I'm very open about it because I truly feel some sense of survivor's remorse almost um, in that I found myself, like most people, um, with the history that I have in the justice system. Except I sit as the prosecutor and not as a defendant.
1: And what I mean, what do you attribute that to? I know your mom obviously struggled financially. It sounds like she also struggled with mental illness, but Mm -hmm. she also seemed to expect a lot from you. And I know you eventually went to a magnet school. I mean, I, I don't know. Was it her expectations? Was it your inner strength? Was it a teacher along the way? Like, Why do you think you were able to come out the way you did? I think it was a combination of things. My
2: mother, look, she was 18 when she had me. I was her second child when they had 13 months. Mm -hmm. Um, And my mother was incredibly brilliant. And what I appreciated was she didn't get to do the things that she knew she was capable of doing. My mother um, was in an upward bound program at Northwestern University um, and was told that she had this tremendous talent but then she had babies um, and you know, got pregnant at 16 and then got pregnant again at 17. And so it was never lost on my mother that we, we could do things. What was present for us were the limitations put on us by our circumstances. So it was never about my talent or my mother's talent, it was the circumstances around us. So she moved heaven and earth to move us from Cabrini to a more affluent neighborhood, just so I could go to a school that um, didn't put limitations on expectations. I mean, I got there in third grade and I had to learn Spanish. And most of the kids had been learning Spanish since kindergarten. And there was no, well, we're sorry you just got here. I needed to learn Spanish like everybody else. And so I think it was the raising of the expectations for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew I could meet it. And my mother knew I could meet it. And so I think that was part of it. And just knowing I knew I was poor. I knew I was black. I knew I had one foot in Cabrini and one foot out. Um, But I also knew that the people who were surrounding me who had more than me were in no way better than me. And that just drove me.
0: Well, you certainly got the message because I think in eighth grade, you ran for student council president and won. Uh, Tell us about that. What prompted you to jump into that race? And as I understand, it was a little controversial at the end.
2: It was controversial. Um, I, you know. I've never lost an election yet. That was my my (laughs) first one. Um, And it really was, you know, there were a handful of kids who were not of the neighborhood who were bused in. And, you know, you, you always felt this othering. And again, we also knew that we were just as smart. And there was a boy, Aaron Bilton, who was lovely, came from a lovely family, came from a very wealthy family. And, you know, I just didn't think Aaron could appreciate like what the issues were at the time. Right? Like, I, think Aaron, I think Aaron was missing. Um, out of touch with
0: the constituents.
2: I think he was out of touch. I think he was missing the whole swath of the constituency, uh, but there was an expectation. My librarian, Miss um, Samuels, bless her soul. Like I remember her saying to me, why are you doing this? You know, almost challenging me of like how dare I believe um, that I could do it. And in fact, you know, I did it. I won. And the greatest irony is, is that Aaron Bilton and I ended up working at the state's attorney's office together um, many years ago. Wow.
1: Okay. before we move on to your career, I got to ask you about you and your husband, because you guys got married really young divorced and then remarried i believe and you have a couple girls like and he had gotten caught up in the criminal justice system so yeah how how <laughs> how did that all go down
2: <laughs> yeah so my husband and i met um my last year of law school in fact six months before i was supposed to graduate and uh it was love at first sight and we married nine months later like i i wow. we met in december we were married We met in December and married in August. And, you know, I didn't study for the bar because I was hanging out with him. Um, So it's a miracle I passed, Uh, but it was very fast. And what you realize is I was graduating, he had gone to the military, so he's a few years behind. We didn't really know where we wanted to be in life. And so a year later, my husband decided he wanted to go to law school and I didn't think he did. Um, And he wanted to go to another state. And what I believed was that I didn't want to hold him back from being who he was as a man um, because I didn't think he could be a good husband to me if he wasn't the man that he needed yeah. to be. So we divorced. Hmm. And then we were apart for a year and a half and said, this doesn't work and got married again.
1: That's really and
2: sweet. We, <laughs> we, we've been on the second go around. Uh, it'll be 20 years in wow. September. Congratulations. Good for you. for for you. Thank you. And and he, he was arrested when he was 19 um, for driving a car and picked up some of his friends and got pulled over. And one of his friends had a gun. And it, this, you know, they he's the driver. And of course, the police find it and they say, whose gun is this? And no one says who it is. And because he's the driver, um, he gets charged. So he does, you know, his community service, and it really it happened when he was nineteen. And the the, the part that is really telling about it, my husband's an amazing man, great father, great, um, you know, person who gives back to his community. Every time he would apply for a job, um, he would hold his breath. Mm-hmm. He would hold his breath, and so that I live with that every day, and the choices that we make. Um, and my husband is almost fifty now of what do we do with people who are, make mistakes in their youth, or maybe not even in their youth, and how do we limit them um, to the worst day that they've
0: had? Yeah, exactly, second chances. Um, I want to ask about the job you're in now. You got elected in 2016. You challenged your boss and won. Yeah. Um, what did you feel when you got elected, when you got into the office? What did you feel like were the most important things that you had to do, wanted to do, and how did you go about it without alienating people like which is kind of what's happened here in california in a little uh, in some ways with la and san francisco
2: well i mean i think i was fortunate in that what has now been seen as a movement was just taking shape i think with my platform was new it was novel and then you saw it being replicated in other places and i think the the other side you know this super you know law and order group has caught on and so the backlash that we see in california um, was well organized and swift uh, because they said, oh, we've seen, this, we've seen this show before. But I think for me, I had worked in the office before, I had left, I'd worked on criminal justice issues in the absence, and I knew our community. And particularly, I knew the end users of the justice system. For too long, you had people who were further away from the centers of, of violence and crime dictating policy. Right. So you had suburban voters saying what policing and prosecution should look like in black urban centers. And you had black people who lived in those communities who didn't even understand what the prosecutor did in their role, who weren't being targeted for their votes. And so what I did was say, hey, end users, victims, families, people impacted by the community. Do you want someone who understands and appreciates the struggles and the complexities of of what this looks like dictating this or people who have no connection to your community. And so when I came in it really was a coalition driven a lot by activists and advocates in the wake of the death of Laquan McDonald and saying that who they were shot
0: shot by police in Chicago.
2: He yes a 17-year-old boy who was shot 16 times by a police officer. And it caused a stir, and an awakening and centering people like Laquan and centering communities like the one I grew up in because they were most impacted by the system. And I think that gave me cover. It gave me cover when the communities were saying, this is what we want. And I was able to do a lot um, because I had their support.
1: Not a ton of time yet, but I also reading about the last two elections, really, I mean, this has taken a toll on you. You've had a lot of threats, a lot of had to have a lot of security. Your life changed dramatically. And we mentioned earlier, you have two daughters. I mean, what has it been like for your family to kind of step into this public role in this way as a black woman, as a progressive prosecutor, which is controversial?
2: Yeah, it's been been difficult. Um, I, I think I've been more vocal in the last year or so about how difficult it has been because I do want more Black women, more women of color to run for these types of roles um, because I think centering our, our experiences matters. I think that's how you're able to, to reimagine what this role can be if you see what it's done for someone like you. Um, But I also wanna do it with a a, a radical honesty about the challenges that come with that. And racism and sexism and misogyny um, are a part of of the deal. Mm -hmm. And for my daughters, you know, they were 13 and 10 when I started this and not really proficient at social media. Um, They now are inundated, they see it um, every day it has uh, enraged them and inspired them at the same time. And so, you know, my honesty about it, my being unapologetic about who I am, not shape shifting to be someone else to make it easier to do this work. In fact, doubling down on on who I am. um, I think, you know, for my 18 year old now who's about to go uh, to college, she recognizes as there is nothing that can hold her back. Even the worst of the worst um, can keep us going.
0: All right. We are literally almost out of time, but real quick, Cubs or White Sox. Cubs. Cubs. I was, a, I was <laughs> the it. Usher
2: in Wrigley. Yes.
0: You're, uh, I was you're a Wrigley Cubs girl.
2: Usher in ninety. Yes. Oh right. <laughs> wow. The All Star game in nineteen ninety. So I am a longtime Cubs
0: fan. All right. Very good. Well, Kim Fox, thank you so much for taking time out of what is I can only imagine is an incredibly busy day. Thank you so much.
2: Thank
1: you both. Thank you.
0: And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio.
1: Our producers, Guy Marzorati. Our engineers, Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor, and Erica Aguilar. We also have a little newsletter we do uh, from Political Breakdown. If Every you want to sign Thursday. up. KQED.org slash political breakdown. Check it out. You can also find us on Twitter. I am Marisa Lagos. You can follow me at M. Lagos. Oh, I'm following you. Sometimes I'll respond. Okay. Not always. Sometimes I try to get off Twitter.
0: <laughs> yeah, good luck. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can see what I'm up to on Twitter besides responding to Mar- Marisa's tweets. <laughs> I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening.